Okay, if you guys could sit down, we'll start in a couple minutes. Okay. How many of you here have heard of Charles Templeton? That sounds familiar. How many of you here have heard of Billy Graham? Yeah. Has anybody here not heard of Billy Graham? My mommy loves Billy. <laughs> Charles Templeton was a very close friend of Billy Graham in their early 20s. They were both, they both had a strong evangelicalistic fervor. People thought that Charles Templeton was the more gifted evangelist. Charles Templeton was becoming a rising star in the evangelical circles. He had a radio show. Uh, he was the president of a Bible college a very highly sought-after speaker. But Charles Templeton had these doubts about life, about God, about the Bible, that were gnawing away at his faith. And it got to the point where he realized, I can't teach this stuff anymore, I can't speak this stuff because I don't believe it. Some of Charles Templeton's objections were Things he found in the Old Testament, like the story of Job. He was just enraged by the story of Job. Saying, he asking people, how would you feel if God killed your children just to make a point in an argument? Tough way to look at it. Charles Templeton was worried about the, the famine and the lack of babies dying simply for a lack of rain. And there we saw a picture of a, a woman holding her baby that had starved to death on the cover of Time, Time Magazine, and he was so angered by this thing, all this baby needed was water. Where was God? Char I read a lot about this in Charles Templeton's book, Farewell to God. He, as far as we know, never came back to the faith. Terribly sad. And people like that make me curious. What are these guys discovering that is making it seem like Christianity is a hoax? There's a website I read a number of testimonies on called xchristians.net and it really shook me because I had heard growing up, I had heard so many conversion stories of people converting from atheism to Christianity but hearing about all these 
Christians converting to atheism was shaking my faith. See, I had this kind of naive <coughs> understanding that if people could just read I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norm Geisler and Frank Turek, or an excellent book, uh, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for a Creator. Man, if people could just read those books, they would see how obvious it is that there's a God, that Christianity is true. But then I started reading about ex-apologists, people who had uh, actually read these books, walking away from the faith. John Loftus, who was a disciple of William Lane Craig, walked away and he wrote his books attacking Christianity. And I started wondering, what is this case against Christianity? So I started reading more of these atheist websites, kind of a little nervous about what I would find. At first it started out just with this desire to understand the lies these people were believing so that I would know how to reach them. But what I start discovered, I wasn't really prepared to deal with. What I found were a lot of emotional attacks, again, bitter emotional attacks against the character of God. Hell was one of the biggest factors in a lot of these people's lives that was driving people away. And about the same time, I was wrestling with the idea of whether a Christian could lose their salvation or not. I was reading some pretty scary stuff, making it seem possible. So I was pondering in my life for the first time the possibility that I could go to hell. And I started to get a tiny glimpse of how terrible hell really is. And I started thinking about the implications of the doctrine of hell. And I was really starting to struggle. How in the world can I have a relationship with a God who is so ruthlessly throwing the majority of people into everlasting torment. I use the illustration that if you if you watch your father totally brutalize your younger sibling, reject him, throw him out in the cold, and you're so disturbed by that, but then your father comes and wants to give you a hug, and you say, you, you monster, you just brutalized my brother. And if your father just says, oh, but I love you so much, he rejected my grace, that was the rightful punishment due him, it doesn't make it any better. And so I was going through this crisis of faith where I was finding it really hard to have a relationship with God, when I was thinking about all the people who were going to hell, and I was starting to get into some of these atheist objections. Objections like, you know, when you think about it, Hitler burned Anne Frank for a few minutes, and we call him a despot. But God is, apparently, according to the atheists and according to some evangelical Christians, is going to burn Anne Frank for all eternity for not believing in Jesus. How does that make God any less wicked than Adolf Hitler? And these objections were gnawing at me, and more kept coming up. God, was it really worth it to kill someone because they picked up sticks on the Sabbath? Was it really right for your children of Israel to have slaves 
some of the slaves, you look at the laws in the Old Testament, and you see things like, if a person beats his slave and that slave doesn't die for two or three days, it was okay because that slave was the property of slave master. But if that person dies within a day or two, then that person shall be guilty. Oh, and just reading that just makes my, my stomach turn. And wrestling with the idea that God commanded his people to go murder babies and go murder other nations around them. And it was just getting to be so terrible. Thinking about the problem of evil in ways I hadn't. Praying with my son, saying God will protect you and leaving the room doubting whether God would really protect him because of all the other people that God hadn't protected. And seeing the... Comparing what I thought was man's goodness versus God's goodness. And you know, if you, what type of father sits by, sits on his hands while his daughter's being raped, and yet isn't that what God does every time a woman is raped? Sits on his hands while that woman's being raped? And these were just a poison that were eating away at my soul. And even though I had studied apologetics for many years, written many papers on the subject, taught the subject, I was seriously starting to doubt the existence of God. And I remember standing outside one night, looking up into the sky, not knowing if God was there and feeling that chill of being alone and feeling like at this point my faith was so fragile and that were I to go through a tragedy, I don't know how my faith would survive. I thought, boy, it's just a matter of time before my testimony ends up on xchristians.net. <laughs> it is so scary for me even now to realize how close I came to walking away from God, how close I came to being another Charles Templeton. I just shared this testimony a few weeks ago in our church, and it totally caught me off guard, but I just started weeping up there because for the first time in my life, I realized how close I came to walking away from God. And I understand some of these atheists and some of these Christians who walk away so much more. But here I had this serious poison in my soul, this root of bitterness to deal with. Wonder, how do I deal with these tough questions about who God is? God showed me some things that I, I want to share with you that really helped put my doubt into perspective. And I hope that if any of you... I just have a question. I'll, I'll, I'll answer it now. I don't know either. I would say the what seems to be the biblical answer to the subject is that if someone really walks away, they never really had true salvation. And it's scary to think just how much you can have, how much a false salvation can look like a real salvation. Uh, from God's perspective, God knows the elect. And so nothing catches him off guard. Anybody he marks out for salvation doesn't lose their salvation. But 
reading some warnings in Hebrews that, I mean, people who can even taste the Holy Spirit and still fall away and not be worthy. And that's scary. And I realized just how serious this was. So I'm struggling with this doubt, but I, I needed to think through this. And this is where I found that a lot of people say that it's, it's the mental areas, that the intellectual stuff that drags you away from God. And so some Christians are very concerned about their children receiving higher education or getting too intellectual because they fear that the more their intellects are challenged, the more, they're, more likely they are to walk away from God. But in my case, what I found was that Satan was pushing me away from using my mind and from careful critical thinking. And he wanted me to be very emotional about this. Because when you think about it, emotions can't think. <laughs> emotions don't reason. Satan loves to push people into the realm of emotion because then they're more putty in his hands. People walk away from God for emotional reasons. People have, have affairs or immoral relationships for emotional reasons. Because when you are basing what's right and wrong on your feelings, your feelings are so easy, man, easily manipulated by art, by movies, by hormones. So Satan loves it when we move to the realm of feelings because scripture commands us to really submit our minds, that we're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we're supposed to have the mind of Christ. We're supposed to subject our wills. And this is what I discovered. I had to step back from the emotional weight of these arguments and make two what I had been melding into one issue, into two issues. On the one hand is the issue of God's existence. Somehow I had bought into the lie that if I couldn't answer everything that God did, then I must not be able to prove his existence. So in other words, if I couldn't give an answer for the existence of hell or for whether it was fair or not for God to do what he did with Job, if I couldn't give an answer for what God did, well then, I, I was, couldn't even prove whether he existed or not. But I've since realized there's two separate issues there. One, whether God exists or not. And two, why God does what he does. So we can answer, we can prove that God exists, but we'd be foolish to think we can exhaustively answer why God does what he does. There's definitely two separate issues here, and it helped to frame my doubt in those contexts because I was doubting his existence. But when I stopped to think about it, none of these atheist articles or books that I was reading had solid philosophical reasoning against the existence of God. Their attacks on the historicity of Christ or that the Bible wasn't God's word were terribly weak. And it doesn't take much apologetic training to see through those. That's not what was pulling me away. What was pulling me away was a, an emotional dislike for what God was doing, for not liking what he was doing. And I realized just because I don't like what someone's doing does not mean that person doesn't exist. I'm a Canadian. I may not like what Barack Obama's doing. That would be a pretty foolish argument against his existence, though. 
And in the same way, just because we don't like what God's doing doesn't mean he doesn't exist. And I have yet to see any conclusive scientific or philosophical proof against the existence of God. That remains so concrete in my mind. But what about this issue of me not liking what God was doing? I had to first of all deal with who, where do I get off? Who am I calling God immoral? By what, what standard am I pointing to when I call God immoral? See, atheists love to condemn. Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, these guys love to condemn God as immoral. Richard Dawkins says some of the most nasty things about the Old Testament God. I don't remember them all, but they're just a list of nasty names. But where, and they call him wicked, they, they morally condemn this God, but where is the atheist getting this standard of condemning God? By what standard am I calling God immoral? By the standard of man? <laughs> There's no standard of morality that comes just from man. By what standard can God be called immoral? See, if there is no God, there is no morality. There, there's no way to call the genocide in the Old Testament, the Holocaust, there's no way to call these things really immoral. So by what standard could God be called immoral? I had no logical grounds to call God immoral. In fact, God is the standard of good. I had to trust him for that. Finally, the next thing, I had to realize that I'm in no position to judge God based on how little information I have. Do you realize that when what appears to be a cruelty, when more information is shed on the, the picture, can actually turn out to be a good thing? If I flashed a picture up here of a man with his fist in a woman's mouth and the woman is screaming in pain, it looks like an injustice. But if I were to shed some more light on the picture, give you more background, and you found out it's actually a dentist pulling an abscessed tooth from a woman, and her quality of life has been ruined for the last several weeks, suddenly what that dentist is doing is a good thing. But you see, we needed more information to see. This is why an atheist, when he calls God's when he says there's gratuitous evil, he doesn't really know enough to really say that anything is gratuitous evil. Because what percentage of all knowledge do we have, really? 1%? Half of 1%? I just really want this to sink in, how limited we are in our perspective. How little we actually, information we acquire in our life. When you know less than 1% of something, how in the world do you think you can make an objective, honest judgment about it? If I had a painting up here and I covered 99% of it, could you judge the artistic merits of the painting by the little black spot that you saw? Could you judge the quality of a novel by reading one sentence, and he died? Oh, that must be a bleak, terrible novel. You can't judge it based on that one percent. And I realized how little I know, how much I need to trust God where I don't know. I had to say, I don't know. I, like the doctrine of hell, for example. 
I realized, who am I to be judging God about hell and letting that be one of my factors that's drawing my way? For one thing, I don't know who's going to hell. I don't know that. I don't know what hell is going to be like. So how can I be accusing God of immorally sending people to hell or giving people in hell an unfair treatment when I don't know what it's going to be like? I know it's going to be terrible, and I know that God's warnings about hell are not for us to be throwing around as weapons at other people. When God, when Jesus spoke about hell, they were often personal warnings of love to you, to let that fear purify you, to drive you closer to God. He wasn't just trying to tell us the eternal the mathematics of everyone who's going to hell and everyone who's going to heaven. We don't know who's going to hell and we don't know who's going to heaven and we don't know what hell is going to be like. We don't know that. But what we do know, and this is, this is the next point, we, we don't know the whole plan of God, but we know his heart. Jesus is God's fullest revelation of who God is, of who God, of what God cares about. And when Jesus came, when God became a man, the first thing, when he started his ministry, he opened the scroll and said, God has sent me, I won't get this all right, but to bind up the brokenhearted, to give sight to the blind, to set the captives free, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is what God's purpose was. This is what God's heart was. Jesus gives us a glimpse of what God's heart is, how he loves the whole world. God's not willing that any should perish. God's heart is to heal. I am the Lord who heals you. God wants to restore us. God, Jesus Christ is the clearest picture of God's heart. So, when, we, when there's vast areas of the novel that we can't see, when there's vast areas of the painting that we can't see, we really need to trust the heart of the artist, trust the heart of the novelist, trust him where we don't know. And this is ultimately, I think, what saved my faith was me acknowledging my limited perspective and getting down on my knees and saying, God, there's so much I don't understand. There are so many objections that I don't have an answer for. It's tough when I read through the Bible for me to swallow certain things, but I'm going to surrender my mind to you. I'm going to trust, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust your heart. I'm going to trust that you're good because you're the very standard of goodness. Apart from you, I've got no standard to even call anything evil. You know, another big problem for why this, we get so bogged down in the problem of evil and the problem of pain and suffering is because we're not grateful. Remember how I talked about perception? How we are selective in what we focus on? We're selective in what we remember? and then we fill in the blanks with things that aren't there, so we get this drastically distorted picture of reality. This is what was happening to me in my vision, in my dealings with God. 
my perception was getting so warped and so twisted that all I was seeing was the negative aspects of God, the negative aspects of the, of the Bible, the negative aspects in life. And when I look at how God was seeing my life, living in a free country, living with a beautiful, supportive, encouraging wife, with beautiful, healthy children, with all of my needs met, all of my limbs, all of my bodily functions working. God must have said, who are you to be wrestling with the problem of evil? Look around you. Wake up, Jesse. I have given you so many good gifts. I really discovered that at the heart of my bitterness and my unbelief and the heart of my doubt was ungratefulness. In Romans 1, it says, one of the chief indictments against fallen man was neither were they grateful. And I see that time and time again in atheist writings. There was another, Dan Barker, who was an evangelical pastor, ordained at 15, was in the Pentecostal circles, just a man with on fire for God, a, a great evangelist, revivalist, who has completely walked away from God. And he's a, this atheist friend of mine that sent me his book, also, I don't remember what it's called, but it was about his whole walking away from God. And anyway, Dan Barker's wife had this experience where she had a seizure that was, there was something wrong during her pregnancy, and she had a seizure at seven and a half months. And she was rushed to the hospital, and they performed an emergency C-section, saved the baby, saved the mother, and they found out that had she not had that seizure, the baby would have died because they discovered another medical problem with the pregnancy. So here God saves the woman's life, saves the baby's life by allowing this to happen. And Dan Barker brags and says, I want you to know that there are atheists in the foxhole and that at no time during the whole ordeal did we ever pray to God. God saved his wife's life saved his baby's life, and there's not a whisper of gratitude for it. When I put the problem of pain and suffering in the context, when I get my perception rearranged and I see the goodness of God, and that for every tragedy there is, there are vast numbers more of tragedies that have been averted that we don't hear about. For every person who is born with a disability, there are millions more who are born with completely healthy bodies. And in our healthy bodies, we look at the person born without a limb, born without an eyesight, and we say, God, why did you let this happen? Well, you know, God is writing, I'm not minimizing the pain of the person born with disability, but oftentimes that person is more grateful and more dependent on God and is happier in life than the person who is healthy and who's letting Satan mess with their mind. Doubt is so often attached to a spirit of ungratefulness. Everywhere you look, God has given us amazing gifts. 
every one of the, through every one of the five senses, God showers us with gifts every day. And we can get so caught up in our self-pity. We can be enjoying a terrific meal after we've gone for a great run. Woe is me. <laughs> Listening to beautiful music. Woe is me. Life sucks. Surrounded by great friends. Man, this life is so miserable. And God's looking at you. Don't you see all the good gifts that I've given you? Can you thank me a little bit? I am surrounding you with good gifts. Things looked so different. Yes, the Bible has stories that I don't understand of God commanding genocide. But God also, the Bible also has the story of the crucified lamb who completely cleansed me and made me able to enjoy a relationship with my creator. It has the story of a man, God, who became a man who conquered death so that I don't have to fear death anymore, that I can have a confidence in him. It's a story of God's tremendous love for us. When you really get your perception sorted out, you can see just how good God is. Another thing that really prevented me from walking away from God was when I had doubts, I learned not just question what I was walking, possibly walking away from, but to also question what I was embracing. Was what I was embracing any better? Any, did it have any less mental difficulties than what I was walking away from? Are there some tough mental questions when you're a Christian? Absolutely. When you walk away from the faith, though, are all of your mental questions resolved? Is it really easier to believe that we are the result of a cosmic explosion, that life came from non-life, that this incredible ordered complexity came from chaos by blind forces, that life, which is so mysterious that man still cannot create life out of nothing, could have just popped out of slime? It's, there's huge problems. Plus, you know, walking away from God doesn't solve anything because God is not the problem. God is the solution to the problem. During this time of doubt, I, was, I read an, an atheist, another atheist website where they had 10 objections that they thought were an airtight argument against God's existence. And one of them was, why doesn't God heal amputees? And their reasoning was that all God would have to do to prove his existence is heal an amputee, and there is no record, <laughs> there's nothing on record of an amputee being healed. Well, first of all, they're very selective in their looking at the evidence of whether an amputee has been healed or not. It's circular reasoning when an atheist says miracles are impossible because they say, well, how do you know miracles are impossible? Because they've never happened. Well, how do you know miracles have never happened? Because miracles are impossible. I told you that. It's circular reasoning. The reason you don't see miracles or you don't believe miracle claims is because of your worldview that says miracles are an impossibility. And when you ask, well, how did you come to the conclusion that miracles are an impossibility? Well, I've never, been, I've never seen a miracle. 
It's just circular reasoning. You're not going to get anywhere. But let's grant for the sake of argument that God has never healed an amputee. Let's ignore the other five billion people with healthy limbs that God has created. But let's just look at the amputee whom God did not heal. Let's say, you know what, that's so right. God never healed an amputee. God must not exist. Is the amputee any better off? Honestly, is the amputee any better off in an atheist worldview, in the atheist universe? Does he? No. I mean, I mean now he lacks the... He, exactly. He loses the hope of heaven where his arm is going to be restored. He loses the sense of providence that has been motivating him because I've heard testimonies of people who have lost a limb. They say, God had a purpose for me in this. And just this I, recognizing that God had a purpose for me made it bearable for them to endure this. So with this problem of pain and evil in the world, getting rid of God does not help anybody. It's so foolish to walk away from God. People are still dying of cancer. People are still starving. Getting rid of God is not, the prob is, is not a help. God is not the problem. God is the solution to our problem. If it weren't from, for God, this world would be so much worse. And you look at countries, the more godless they become, the more it turns into hell. You look at Germany. You look at communist Russia. You look at China, you look at these other places where there's been atheistic dictators. It gets worse when you walk away from God. Greg Kokel, he said something very profound with questioning these atheists who walk away from God for the problem of pain and evil. And he attributed, he put these words in God's mouth. How can you walk away from me who gives you all these good gifts, who is there averting the disaster and helping people in the midst of disaster. You walk away from me, but you still believe in man who is the cause of all these problems. This is really what I had to grapple with. What is the alternative? Are there things I don't understand about God? I raised a lot of hard questions this morning. Can I answer all of them? No. Some of them I have a little clearer understanding, like the whole issue of slavery. When I compare the slave laws in the Old Testament with any other law that was around at the time, God's slave laws reflect an incredible respect and honor and dignity for the slave that was unheard of in any other culture. So God's law was way ahead there. I also understand that sometimes God allowed certain things because of the hardness of their hearts. He wasn't fully endorsing it. And I also see that in the New Testament, the very seeds for the abolition were planted. So uh, the fact that the Christian understanding that we're not animals who, with the rights to control people, but that every person is created in the image of God, that's the seeds for equality. That's where we get our rights for freedom. It's rooted in God's creation. That's one example. I mean, as far as the whole God commanding genocide thing, there's certain things that 
put in context, apparently most of the time the children of Israel did send out a warning to people. Also, the children of Israel were not supposed to become a, an aggressive nation that went beyond the bounds that God gave them. They were only supposed to claim the land that God gave them. They weren't supposed to become aggressive world dominators. Some of these, what these nations were doing were so despicable, the child abuse, the violence, that it was actually more merciful to be murdered as a baby and go to heaven than it would have been to grow up in that culture. I, am I comfortable with it? <laughs> no, but I'm just saying these are some clues that when we get a little bigger picture of what God is doing, it makes a little more sense. But I also realized that walking away from God would not solve anything. I really felt like Peter did. You know, when Jesus told, was, was telling these very hard truths about needing to eat his body, drink his blood in order to be his disciple. And he wasn't making it easier for people. These were very difficult, hard to understand sayings. And people were just walking away from Jesus. Jesus asked his disciples, do you too want to walk away? Peter said, no, God, no, Lord. Who else has the words of eternal life? Really, what's the alternative to walking away from God? Who else can, offer, can give us meaning and hope? There is just no other alternative out there that you can find. I'd rather live with some hard-to-understand things in my relationship with God and trust Him to be God and to know what He's doing than to try to be God of my own life. Try to put God in the dock and be the one who judges God than to, to walk away and be, face such emptiness apart from God. Do you have, does anybody have any questions? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I know there's been theologians in the past who believe that any baby that died went to hell because they never had the chance to confess with their mouth that Christ was Lord. And some people painted the most horrible pictures in the 1700s of babies in their own personal little ovens banging on the wall while they're in, rather being burned. It's just a terrible picture. I, I don't... Yeah, I, I think that's certainly possible. I think it, there's a lot of things we don't understand, but one thing I do know is that God is going to deal perfectly justly and perfectly good with every person who dies. And that when we understand all the factors, all of our mouths, all of our criticisms against God will be stopped. We're in no position to judge God. We have no hard evidence that God has done anything immoral. People have accused God of doing immoral things. They've suspected him of doing immoral things. 
They've done some hard things, but we have no hard evidence that God has done anything immoral. What we do have hard evidence for is that God loves us with an incredible love. That we have Jesus taking on human flesh, taking the most horrific death to scream to us that God loves us and God is willing to do whatever it takes to restore us. We're going to deal a little later with a, a session on, on dealing with, with some of these different objections. I think I'm just going to take some time, though, to, to grapple a little more with, with this issue of hell. It is, it is so difficult because we do need to acknowledge Christ's teaching on hell. There's definitely Christians who have bent over backwards to try to twist scripture into saying that there is no, that, that there is a hell, but ultimately everyone will be saved. I don't think there's enough scriptural support for that. Other people have also taken the approach that hell is annihilationism, that once someone has suffered for their sins, God eventually snuffs them out. I really think that God is the source of all goodness. He's our source of meaning, of satisfaction, of beauty, of joy, of hope, of love. And that when someone spends their entire life saying, God, out of my life, God, out of my life, I don't want you telling me who I can sleep with. I don't want you to tell me how, I did, how to dress. I don't want you to mess with my financial dealings. Out of my life, out of my life, out of my life. I really think God is going to someday say, okay, I'm going to step out of your life. Yes? Okay. Um, so when God says that, you know, it's so important that we understand why hell is terrible. Hell is terrible because it's, it's the absence of God. It, it, is a, it is a just punishment. But I think in many ways, hell is a just punishment because the punishment fits the crime because the crime is the punishment. In other words, the crime is walking away from God and the punishment is being given a godless eternity. The punishment is giving the person what they wanted to do. I really don't believe that hell is full of remorseful, repentant people. Scripture says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I, maybe I'm wrong in this, but I think it's consistent with God's character that hypothetically were someone in hell to repent, not just say I'm sorry, but actually repent and say God save me. I think it's consistent with the rest of scripture that God would save that person. Is God, that's a completely different question, answer than is God going to save people in hell? If he's not going to save people in hell, I really think it's because something happens to people where they become so hardened in their choice that they lose their choice. They lose their ability to repent. But I really don't believe that hell is full of repentant people who are longing for God to save them and God is not saving them. Because you look at, 
it didn't matter how wicked any one of the kings of Israel were, anybody who repented. I, it's my belief that hell is locked from the inside. That it, these people in hell's minds have become so twisted, so corrupt, that they would rather have their freedom, their independence, than surrender to God. Say, their minds have become so deceived that they think God is an ogre trying to get them. Kind of like those elves in the last battle in the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Their minds have become so deluded that even though they were tasting good fruit, they thought it was horse dung in a stable. It, it just life was seeming so miserable to that person. So it's my belief that as long as someone is saying no to God, as long as that resistance happens, God's going to respect that person. And that person, it is going to be miserable. But with hell, God is not the problem. These people, Christians who portray hell as a place where God is putting this catch in that you have to believe in Jesus or you're going to get thrown in the torture chamber are really mispainting the picture. Jesus is not in the way. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the one who softens our hearts so that we want God. Jesus is the one who forgives us our sins so that we can enter God's presence with boldness. Jesus is the only way, not because God's making things difficult, but because Jesus is God. And a rejection of Jesus is a rejection of God. And a rejection of God is hell. You cannot have happiness apart from God. And to, it's, it's perfectly just for God to take back the gifts. Do you realize everything we have in this life is a gift? None of it's ours. We have been, this idea is so ingrained in us that we are owed the right of health, wealth, and prosperity. And when we don't have that, God, you messed up. You did not give me my rights. No. <laughs> Everything, every breath we get, every gift we have, every day of health, it's a gift, it's not a right. And when you look at it that way, do you see just how dramatically the situation looks different? Suddenly, God is this amazingly generous God who is giving out of his goodness, out of the overflow of his love for us. And all we can think about is what we, we're not getting. That ingratitude is really at the root. What was your question? I was going to ask, are you familiar with Dante and the whole theory of the purgatory and that institute in the Catholic Church? Are you, are you on that? That's a very interesting topic, the whole topic of purgatory. Um, there's not a lot of proof for it in the evangelical Bible. I can certainly tell you what I want to be true. <laughs> um, this is a Bible school, and I'm a teacher, so I'm not too sure what I, where the line is between telling you what I want and what the official position of what my official position is. I earnestly want to, to trust God's goodness on these things. I do know that so much of the hell people go through on earth, God uses to soften people and to to bring to him. And if it turns out that 
I've misunderstood scripture and most of the church has understood <laughs> misunderstood scripture and it turns out that God is using hell not just as retributive punishment but to actually soften people so that they repent. I'm going to be rejoicing as much as anybody but that is not what I'm teaching. <laughs> I don't think that, I don't think there's, there's great scriptural support from that. I think there's pretty strong warnings that hell goes on and on and that, I mean, there's verses that say that the wicked are going to go to everlasting destruction and the righteous are going to go to everlasting hope. So, um, as much as I may have private hope that hell's not going to be as bad, that as not as many people are going to go there, or that somehow God, it's possible for God to save people after, we do not have good scriptural support for that. And we need to really be faithful to what God has revealed to us but we do need to recognize that God is good and that whatever people receive in hell, it's going to be more than fair. What's that another question? So I was just going to say, um, back to the whole heaven and hell thing, um, a lot of people like, forget that Satan is in the world. Like, he doesn't rule it now, but God has given him permission to work in the world. And I think a lot of people blame God for a lot of Yes. Yes. Absolutely, it does. And that is one thing I, I was really blown away when I was looking at the different theories of atonement and this, examining the whole Christus Victor view, which sees the atonement as a victory over the powers of evil. Just how often the New Testament writers saw the problems and the sin in this world as a result of a cosmic battle and that Satan was destroying us, that there is definitely a demonic power. And hell was created for the devil and for his, his demons. And it's just, I think it's another analogy that I heard is like God can separate us from our sin by the cross, but if we want to remain bound to our sin, eventually it's going to have to go out with the rest of the cosmic garbage. I just want to make sure you guys understood that I was not teaching universalism. A universalism, the idea that there is no hell and that everybody... I've been just saying that it's one thing as a Christian to want certain things, but at the same time it's very important that we are so... our minds are so surrendered to the authority of the Bible. And that when we come to conclusions that we don't like in the Bible, it's still our job to say God knows a whole lot more than we know. Was, did I see another question? Yes. Um, is you said everlasting hope? Like, would hope be necessary if we're already in heaven? Um. Good question. I, I think hope. be hope realized uh, I would be uh, I mean heaven's not going to be static it's not going to be boring I guess we could always be hoping for more all eternity uh, I, heaven's not going to be boring there's going to be so much of God's wisdom and creativity to explore
I'm asking your opinion. I have my opinion, but I'm just curious what you think. Yeah, that's one of the objections I cover. I, once again, I believe that based on God's character, that whoever responds to the light that God gives them, God will give that person <clears throat> more light. Whether that's the form of an angel proclaiming the gospel to someone who has, who, where a missionary has never gone. I look at, it's possible there was Old Testament saints who hadn't heard the crucifixion story, who hadn't heard the gospel message, and they were still saved based on the cross. It's my firm, this is so terrifying to stand before you here in the position of teacher because I recognize how serious it is to teach things. And I do not want to be in any way leading any of you astray or teaching you falsehood or letting my private speculation lead you into heresy. Because, believe me, I'm terrified of that. James, as you'll see, let not many of us become teachers knowing that we shall receive the stricter judgment. And so I am aware of that stricter judgment. Yes? There's lots of ideas that theologians have proposed that aren't really in the scripture. But it just, I just really believe that. I mean, some theologians, they come up with the most elaborate means. They say that anybody who dies in infancy has a life that they would have lived, and God in his omniscience knows what they would have done, whether they would have rejected God or whether they would have accepted God, and he judges them according to that. I don't really get that because it doesn't seem fair to punish someone for a moral crime they could have committed, but they, they didn't commit. As far as those who've never heard the gospel, there's a the another theory that theologians have come up with that God knows before people are born whether they'll respond to the gospel or not, and he puts all the people who, who would have responded to the gospel in an area where they hear the gospel, and all the people who wouldn't have responded to the gospel, he puts in an area where they never would have heard the gospel. Pretty elaborate speculation, I think, because they're trying to just hold, hold firmly to this, the idea that only... They're, they're concerned that if, if, if you open the door a little bit, the people who have not heard the gospel can be saved. It's going to be a hindrance to missions. That if people think that there's a possibility that people can be saved apart from the gospel, um, why do missions? And you got to do missions regardless. I mean, it's the same Calvinists wrestle with the same thing. Why do evangelism if the elect are all going to be saved? We do it out of obedience. And in all of our evangelism, it's got to be 100% what's our job and 100% what's, what's God's job. And God cares so much about it. So I really, again, it's a big, with the, those who haven't heard, it's a big, I don't know. If, I, if it's starting to become an issue in my faith where I am angry at God for something, that's where I need to say, I don't know. I don't know that he is dealing unfairly with those who have not heard the gospel. I don't know that. But I do know that God is the one who is seeking us and that Jesus promises whoever seeks will find. It's an inaccurate picture 
of the heathen to say that they're there seeking, groping for God, and God is just elusive and he's, he's hiding from them. And he's not being merciful to them. That is not an accurate picture of... I, I think if, if, if people are not responding to God, it's not God's fault. It's that the people are rejecting the light they already have. So, boy, definitely treading on some thin theological ice with those topics of hell and babies. And, but once again, please search God's word and come up with your own convictions on these because these areas are so important. My only point was that always remember that what we can be sure of is God's goodness and God's mercy, and that where there's areas where we don't understand, it's okay to say, I don't understand, but I'm going to trust that God will do righteously, that the standard of goodness will do good. So.